are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. It really is, uh, I say it again, it's, it's my pleasure to help out, it really is. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, with these Christmas songs and the passage read by Howard about Christmas and Mary, it's not a Christmas message, so I hope you won't be disappointed. (laughs) If you, I think it's up there, no? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read Luke, and I'm going to read the first four verses of Luke, and I'm going to read with uh, the understanding that most of us, if not all of us, have some background in, did I say Luke? Jude. Why did I say Luke? Because it's Howard's fault. He, he was reading from Luke. <laughs> I apologize. I'm reading from Jude, first four, four verses, and with the understanding, with the hope that most of us uh, have a background in Jude, be, just for the sake of time, instead of reading all of of Jude gives us a good context, uh, but I will only be reading the first four verses. So Jude, chapter, well, only one chapter, verses one to four. <clears throat> Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master, and Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mentioned this morning, and I will mention it again, <clears throat> that I bring this message with a sense of trepidation. And the reason for that is uh, it's a message that, at least generally speaking, or the type of message, that is done by the leadership of the church. And so... As we go through this, uh, let me say it's a caveat of sorts that this message is not for any one specific person, not directed at any one specific person. It's not directed at any one church, uh, but it's directed at all believers in Jesus Christ. And as we go through Jude, I think you'll see that very clearly. This message is for us all believers in Jesus Christ. So that's my caveat. So I'll start with a short history reminder uh, that will hopefully segue into the body of our message uh, in a few minutes, I hope. Most of us know a little of the event of when in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door, which in effect began what we know today as the Reformation. 
for believers in Jesus Christ back then and, and for believers today, one of the many tremendous benefits of the outcome of Luther's work, and he did have contemporaries that, that helped Luther, so Luther and others, uh, was that it gave Christians uh, a Bible which they now, for the first time, those that could read, could read in their own language. Most everyday folks had never seen a Bible, let alone uh, be able to read it. They didn't even know what was in it. They relied on the priesthood of the day to relay what they thought was its message. But even the priesthood of the established church of the day was, in a sense, Bible ignorant. And this is not a personal judgment. It is what it is, that they were Bible ignorant. Because their own education in their respective seminaries or their respective churches, or respective uh, places of learning, consisted of learning their own church history or learning their own church doctrine as established by the papal bulls or, or papal decrees rather than what was in Scripture. And, of course, this was another uh, great frustration of Luther. Why didn't the church proclaim the message of Scripture? Having everyone read the Bible for themselves, of course, was a significant part of, of Luther's thesis. However, there was also a major downside, which even by Luther himself admitted was something that he did not foresee. And this is what he said. Some people, those who were initially siding with Luther in his work, uh, and were pastors or leaders in their own communities, as these people began to read the Bible, they were misunderstanding it. They were misinterpreting it. They were making total, uh, totally inappropriate application of passages. And thus were, in short, becoming false teachers of Scripture and leading their flocks, their people, down rabbit holes contrary to biblical doctrine. As an aside, uh, this false teaching, which was publicly condemned by Luther, by the way, contributed significantly to what became and is today known as the Peasants' Revolt in Germany, in which upwards of 100,000 peasants, people, were killed by the authorities because false teachers said the scripture gave them the right and God-given authority to rise up against the government and rebel. Even to this day, as you read about that particular event, uh, most secular historians will say this, and I quote, it was sparked by the Protestant Reformation. Of course, what they don't tell you, it was this false teaching that Luther so condemned. It was led by a person, uh, one of the leaders was a person named Thomas Mutzer, and in his reading, his application of scripture, he wanted to create a utopian Christian society and to establish that utopian Christian society by force, and hence the Protestant or the Peasants' Revolt. This false teaching greatly troubled Luther for a number of reasons, two of which I'll mention. One, it actually gave credibility to Rome's argument that not everyone should read the Bible because they're not qualified to read the Bible, and they pointed to the Peasants' Revolt and said, see? What happens when people who are not qualified to read the Bible see what happens? 
And second, Luther didn't want to be identified with these false teachers, but he nevertheless was because the false teachers and he were preaching against the authority of Rome. So he was lumped in with these false teachers. And so the segue I'm trying to make here this morning is since the Reformation, indeed since the beginning of time, misrepresentation of Scripture, misunderstanding of Scripture, errors made of Scripture, indeed purposeful deception resulting in incorrect and misleading application of Scripture has not ceased, but rather has intensified over the years. All types of false teaching uh, is rampant in our world, and in particular, in the so-called Christian churches, Christian community. In the extreme, for example, I mean, some of us remember a couple of these incidents, uh, we have 900 people who committed suicide under the guise of a Christian leader in Jonestown, Ghana. Some of you might remember that. Or the killing of 80 people, upwards of 80 people, in Waco, Texas. Again, all within what is called the branches of Christianity. Likewise, you can look this up yourself today. There are groups hiding under the the guise of the Christian banner, and they call for a forceful armed conflict to usher in the kingdom of heaven. These are the extremes. But there's all other types of false teaching out there. False healing, deceptive, money scams, uh, preachers calling, wanting to raise money for their personal jets because they say Christ would not ride in a donkey today. He would use a jet. And people buy that. Claims of speaking for God from so-called prophets outside of scriptural truths. All types, certain churches encouraging all types of immoral living within their church. Researchers tell us that today there are, broadly speaking, 200 different Christian denominations in the U.S. alone. And they say if these 200 are further dissected, they say there's over 1,300 in the U.S. alone, 1,300 different Christian denominations. And if Christian denominations are dissected worldwide, they say there's over 40,000 Christian denominations worldwide. And so, for me, the question, I think, for all of us is, are all of these biblically centered? Or are there false teachers amongst us, amongst the Christian community? And hopefully that's a question that is rhetorical for most, if not all of us. So what are we to make of this? Well, first I would say is that this false teaching, as I said a minute ago, this false teaching has been a constant since the beginning of time, with the great deceiver himself coming to Adam and Eve and saying, Yea, hath God said. And the deception started there. And as we look at the history of the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, we witness the plethora of false worshiping brought out by false teachers time and time again. False prophets, instead of telling the people what God wants the people being told, they tell the people what the people want to hear. They want to hear good news. Read Kings, read particularly Jeremiah. And the people want the good news to feel good about themselves. And Jeremiah says, no. 
But you're not going to feel good because there's this great nation coming and you're going to be taken away and you're going to hurt and you're going to suffer and you're going to cry. And these false prophets slapped Jeremiah, threw him in a pit because they don't want to hear that. But we also witness in the Old Testament God through his godly prophets. How many times does God caution, warn Israel against false teaching? But sadly, false worship is where Israel ends up time and time again, right through the end of the Old Testament, right through the end of Malachi. Even Malachi, the very last prophet, is warning people, saying you've been led astray. Then in the New Testament, 2,000 years ago, Christ himself, the very Son of God, truth, truth incarnate, acquiesces to the nature of man, and he tells us that there's going to appear false prophets. But he adds that they, they will appear to be righteous. They will appear to follow Christ. But he says, but in reality, this is Christ's words, they are ravenous wolves. And then after Christ's ascension, the various apostles <clears throat> give their readers, in other words, give us the same message, to beware of false teachers, to beware of these, of these teachers, these prophets, who give people what they want to hear rather than the message of Scripture, that there is a judgment coming. And almost every epistle either warns us or alludes to these false teachers. And so hence, then, we come to our passage for today. Slightly long introduction, but I think the context is important because it has not changed. The context of Jude and verses 1 to 4, and my hope is to give us an overview, a little bit of, of Jude, and then focus on the first four verses. Who was Jude? Well, he was identifies himself as the brother of James, which we put all the other verses together, and James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and therefore Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the Lord's brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah until after the resurrection, but the resurrection, the resurrection convinces the Lord's brothers and sisters, that he was and is the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. And therefore, Acts tells us that the Lord's brothers and sisters and mother were all in the upper room with the coming of Pentecost. After Pentecost, at least from what we read, from what we know, at least James and Jude, a couple of references throughout Scripture, were involved in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So James and Jude at least the two, were involved. It was written, again, based on th commentators, it was likely written around the mid-60s, roughly, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So one of the first things I think we ought to notice is that the readership of this letter is not to one specific church. And it's important for us to grasp that right at the outset. Rather, it was addressed to all believers, in Jesus Christ. And that's why I say this is not written. This is not about one church. This is not about one, one person. It's about all believers in Jesus Christ. And com commentators believe that this letter was meant to be read in the various house churches that had sprung up in and around Jerusalem. 
to Jewish people who have, come, who have become believers in Jesus Christ. And we say that because as you read Jude, you'll see that Jude refers a number of times uh, to illustrations from the Old Testament. So Jewish Christians would be quite familiar with these illustrations, not so much so Gentile Christians at that time, but primarily Jewish Christians. Well, Jude begins by, begins by stating that as he sat down uh, to, to pen a letter, there was something else he wanted to share. He, he admits that right at the beginning. He says, I wanted to talk about our common salvation. Now, he doesn't elaborate on what that was. He doesn't tell us. Was it about uh, the, the blessings of being a Christian? Was it about the, the hardships that, that Christians were going through even then? We don't know. But because he uses that word common uh, uh, salvation, maybe it was about the common grace that they found in Jesus Christ. Because status was really important in that time. Uh, uh, your role was really important at that time. It determined to a certain extent who you were. And so when he talks about this common grace, common salvation, is Jude telling us that it didn't matter if you were rich or poor. It didn't matter if you were free or, or slave, which Paul also tells us. It, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. There is this common salvation, which is the great equalizer, which is Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we are all saved by the same blood on the same cross. No one, doesn't matter your, your background, is saved any more or any less or any differently other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what he's referring to when he's talking about this common salvation, to try to dispel some of that, that status that was around in that culture. Not sure. But something significant was happening in churches roundabout that really really disturbed Jude, and upon hearing it, it made Jude change the direction of his letter to stop writing about this common salvation and write about something else. What was that? Well, clear and present danger had crept secretly into the churches, and Jude, by interrupting his initial thought and now writing this, Jude is telling us this. Judas saying, addressing this danger at this time is more important than talking about our common salvation. And folks, I submit to you, as you look around and you read and you hear about all the garbage out there that people are referring to that is Christianity, that now is also a time that addressing the falsehood is more important than talking about our common salvation. It is rampant out there. There's so much of it. And people, under the guise of Christianity, are buying into this. Even though in his introductory remarks, Peter confirms their, sorry, Jude confirms their faith in Jesus Christ. And he does it by saying three points. First of all, he says, you're loved of God, you're called of God, and you're kept for Jesus Christ, in contrast to what he's going to say about the false teachers that he's going to write about shortly. 
nevertheless, despite this assurance that they're loved and kept uh, for Christ, uh, there's a stumbling block there. These false teachers are going to come in, and they're going to influence these early believers. Now, it's also important, I think, to see that Jude is emphasizing their love, their salvation, their perseverance is all of God. It's all the grace of God. Now, why is it important that we get this right at the beginning? Because it's this grace. It's this grace of God that these false teachers are going to attack. It's this grace that these false teachers, he himself says it, are going to pervert. That's why it's important. And so Jude identifies their position right at the beginning, in God, loved of God, called of God, and kept for Christ. Jude was not concerned with the final end of the false teachers, as we read later. He knew their end. He knew that God would rightly execute judgment upon them. But he was concerned about the effects on the church, that that the truth of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ was being corrupted and allowed to come into the churches as snares for, for believers, rendering them ineffective, rendering churches ineffective. Certainly Jude is clear their salvation is assured and they're preserved, but there would be faltering, there would be stumbling if this deceitful teaching is not dealt with, dealt with very quickly. Also please note that this this letter was not written to individual pastors. It was not written to Titus. It was not written to, to Timothy, but rather it was written to the Christian community of that time. And by extension, it's written to the Christian community today. Therefore, what Jude is saying is this. The responsibility to know and recognize false teaching and false teachers rests on every single believer of Jesus Christ. Certainly, it behooves the elders and the pastor to take a leadership role in that. That is true, as per other epistles. But believers in Jesus Christ cannot download their responsibility to the leadership and, and, and criticize the pastor. Why didn't you? No, no. This letter was written to every believer in Jesus Christ. Each of us have a responsibility to recognize false teaching and do something about it. And so Jude continues in verse 3. Instead of writing about their common salvation, he feels, or rather, He is actually compelled to give instructions that they're to be contending for the faith. And so what Greek scholars tell us here is what is implied is that Jude, in a sense, was forced to change the direction of his letter. He was literally obligated, that's the thought here, to write a different letter as if someone took a pen and said, no, you're not going to write that. This now is more important. And Jude seems to be quite shaken up upon hearing what was happening in the Christian churches of that particular time. And the reason is, verse 4, for certain individuals have secretly crept into the churches ungodly people who do what? Pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, denying the Lord Jesus Christ, our sovereign and our Lord. In effect, changing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the urgent need to contend for 
the faith. Now, I'm going to paraphrase a Dr. Burke Bar Parsons here. And at this point, he asked the question, why this command by Jude at this particular time to contend for the faith? He doesn't give a precise answer, but he says, as we know, early churches were struggling with falsehood, false teaching, almost immediately. And as well, uh, there is this aversion to dealing with this falsehood, this aversion to dealing with false teaching in the early churches. And that's why Parson says that's why the New Testament writers write so passionately, warning Christians about false teachers. And maybe Parson suggests this is what's happening here. There is this aversion to dealing with false teachers. Maybe the believers didn't want to draw a line in the sand. Maybe believers didn't, or were reluctant to draw a line in the sand. Maybe they didn't want to be seen as intolerable. Maybe they don't want to be seen as unloving. Maybe these false teachers have become friends with some believers and, didn't, and believers really didn't want to call their friends out on false teaching. Verse 12 seems to imply that. We're not sure, but there is an implication there in verse 12. Clearly, we don't know the precise reason, but what is clear is that Jude's readers had not been contending for the faith up to now, and they're to do so urgently right now. And so then, what is it to contend? Scholars tell us that the language used here is, would have the readers think of a, as a minimum of some type of struggle, of some type of conflict, that there's going to be pain involved, but likely, in the language used here, uh, it would suggest a battle, a bloody battle where there would be real pain, someone would for sure get hurt. As someone else has said, it is to earnestly or agonizingly, suggesting pain, strive for the truth. It's similar to what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Is that not a suggestion that we may get hurt? Also of interest for you grammar people, which I am not, is that the word contend here is used as what they call a present infinitive. That means when, it's, when that phrase is used, it means it's ongoing. It is never to stop. It's never to cease. When I talk about when I breathe, that implies I continue to breathe. It, it, breathing becomes a present infinitive. And so that's the context here. When we contend, or when they're to contend for the faith, you don't contend once and stop. No, you contend, continue to contend for the rest of your days. To quote John Piper on this, he says, When God provides victory, which he does, his purpose is not for us to lay down the sword, but rather to continue with the sword of the Spirit. We continue to contend. So to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to us. The word faith here uh, does not mean our personal faith in, in Jesus Christ, e even though that's implied and that's involved. But rather the word faith here means a body of knowledge. It refers to a body of truth uh, handed down, uh, teaching handed down, as Second Peter also says, handed down from the prophets 
and the apostles. That's what this truth implies. And so here we have it. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament churches, this sacred truth was attacked and continues to be attacked. And so the call remains for us to contend for the faith. Now, I know there's much discussion today in that we are in a post-Christian society uh, and never before has Christianity been so oppressed. Well, I'm not so sure. Personally, certainly we're in a post-Christian society. I'm not disputing that. But my knowledge of history, my knowledge of Christian history, uh, Christ's truth has always been attacked. It's always been contradicted. It's always been questioned. It's always been nullified. It's always been mocked. It's always been ridiculed. It's always been scorned. But despite that, the believer in Christ has to ask themselves, in my actions, in my words, in the gift given to me by the Holy Spirit for my ministry, do I contend for the faith that was earnestly passed down? I would suggest, because as we look at the dangers facing this church, as we look at the dangers facing the Christian churches, might I even suggest boldly, possibly this church, that these dangers have not gone away. Rather, they've been neatly wrapped in different packages uh, such that they're a delight to look at by the world. Uh, Sadly, even uh, a delight to the ears and eyes of some quarters of Christianity. They have fallen for that. They've stumbled. Sad also because the method and means of false teaching continues to be the same. To infiltrate Christian churches, to render them ineffective, to render them powerless. And once again, as you look at Christian history and you look at the number of churches that have historically preached the gospel and today they're empty. In other words, Ichabod has been written across the doorway, meaning the glory of God has departed because false teaching permeated that church. And that's where they are today. Someone else has said the worst enemies of Christ are the self-proclaimed Christians. We ought not, we ought never to have a sense of complacency when it comes to challenging what is heralded today as truth, when in reality it's the opposition, it's an opposite to the faith handed down to us once and for all. And we uh, in the Christian church have to defend our Christian faith handed down to us by the apostles and the Old Testament once and for all. And once and for all, once for all does not refer to once upon a time. Once and for all refers to this is a complete package. In other words, nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. There are new, no new revelations. There are no new visions. There are no new truths according to Scripture. You want to know more about God? Does the world want to know about God? Scripture says, look to Jesus Christ, period. To know Christ is to know God. There are no additional visions, no additional truths. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. As a background... Let me give you, broadly speaking, uh, three 
types of false teaching that had permeated the early church. And I bring these up because in one form or another, these are still prevalent today. Now, there are others, okay, but these are the three main ones that were identified in the early church. And this false teaching, these false teachings had, of course, their genesis in false teachers. They changed scriptural truths, like the Old Testament prophets, which may be why these false teachers so easily were able to come into churches, because it sounded so good. It sounded so much like the truth, but in reality, it was falsehoods. In reality, it was and is lies. So, one, and these aren't in order of importance or in order of priority, they're just three. One is this, that teachers were going around saying, it's okay to believe in Christ, but because of all these other religions, you also have to obey their laws. In other words, what these teachers, in fact, were saying is that you have to return to a works salvation rather than soul faith in Jesus Christ because that's what the grace of Christ, that's what the gospel was being preached at that time and still today. It's the sole grace of Jesus Christ. And they said, no, it's okay, but you also have to do this. In other words, as Jude tells us, they were altering the meaning of the grace of God. I referred earlier to Martin Luther, and this was the single largest complaint against the established church. His argument was, folks, our argument ought to be is that the righteous shall live by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That was the cornerstone of his argument against the established church church. It's not works. It's my faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we are not to be enslaved to works to prove our worthiness to God, but rather find freedom and rest in the final work of Christ on the cross. His complete atonement, his work, and his work alone. Whether it's an organized religion or individual thought, this tends to be so prevalent in our time. This opinion, this view, which pushes that somehow my righteousness ought to count before a most holy God. Folks, if we think that at all, we do not understand holiness. Because if you sin, if I sin a tiny, tiny little bit, it's just in opposition to God's holiness. And this view that somehow our goodness is appealing to God. It's totally foreign to Scripture. This is a perversion of the grace of Christ, says Jude. So on the one hand, there's this push, continues to be this push, to demonstrate our, basically our worthless good works before God. But on the other hand, even early in the Christian church, there were some going around who were teaching the exact opposite. What they were saying is, Because of what Christ has done, sin as much as you want. Go ahead. Because if God is is gracious, if God is forgiving, then the more you sin, the more evident will be God's grace. Which again is a perversion of the grace of God. This horrible teaching basically says that since my righteousness 
of, uh, since the righteousness of the cross covered my unrighteousness, then I can sin as much as I want. Today we call that antinomianism, and it's contrary to Scripture. And so here, too, the meaning of grace had been altered to suit the lifestyle of those who wanted to live a particular lifestyle, to do what they wanted. And we know this is not just in Jude, but the Apostle Paul has to counteract that argument as well. People wanting to live a lifestyle that's contrary to God, so here's what they said. And some people bought that argument. Bonhoeffer, when he wrote about this, he says, it's this cheap grace that has permeated Christian churches. And he wrote this 70 years ago. A third false teaching which was prevalent then was what is known as Gnosticism. Not agnosticism, but Gnosticism. And this view pushed and still pushes the view that we don't need faith. Faith is irrelevant. But rather what we need is, is, is the special knowledge. To truly know and see God, there is secret knowledge that you must attain to. And the secret knowledge is attained through visions, through chanting, through dreams. Things haven't changed, haven't they? Etc. Special secret knowledge must be acquired. Therefore, the written word is irrelevant. Therefore, the, the written word is in meaningless. As well, some elements of Gnosticism had a real difficult time uh, between the material and the spiritual. And they, they said, therefore, if Jesus came, if Jesus was God, he could not have come as a person because the, the two to them were, were contradictory. The Messiah, God's son, could not have come as a person. That's another falsehood. Even John the Apostle, uh, he has to counteract that argument as well as the other apostles. But first John 4.1, and, and John starts by saying, uh, many false prophets have gone into the world. And one of the falsehoods he says is, how do you know the true spirit of God? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's addressing what the Gnosticists were, were arguing against. No, he didn't. And then John in, 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 in Second John says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. 2,000 years later, folks, has this changed? My reading tells me this falsehood of Gnosticism is manifested today in all the teachings surrounding mysticism, surrounding New Age, surrounding pantheism, and the likes. So these perversions of truth may be wrapped up differently today, but the bottom line is they deny, they pervert the grace of our Lord and Sovereign Jesus Christ. This grace which is the centerpiece of Christ's gospel by which mankind alone might be saved is being degraded, it's being undermined, it's being minimized. In other words, it's being rejected. It's being perverted by false teachers because they want to take the glory away from Jesus Christ and put it onto themselves. That Christ's work was absolutely meaningless. Now, I know, <clears throat> and this is, I say, I digress and make it a personal point. 
I, I find it interesting that Jude does not stop and say, look at Mr. So-and-so, look at Mr. So-and-so. And I do know, as I read, that there are many sincere, conservative, evangelical Christians who name names, and we could name quite a few names here. Uh, and I'm not going to argue with them, that's not the point. But I find it interesting that Jude doesn't name the names of these false teachers. And maybe, this is my suggestion, and maybe it's to tell us that naming names is at best temporary. It, it's at best uh, short-lived. That's to say, if Joe comes into uh, your church today and is known as a false teacher, uh, you just deal with Joe, kick him out of the church, and things are fine, giving a false sense of security. But is the false teaching not still out there? Is it not better to identify the false teaching because it spans across individuals? Identifying false teaching spans across time, spans across churches. Knowing deceitful teaching will always identify the false teachers into the end of the ages. That's a thought. And so within the next 15 verses, Jude is pretty hard on those who corrupt the truth of God. And if you read Second Peter, you'll see that Peter is even harder on them. It's scary. Folks, if we don't believe in God's judgment, read what will happen to these false teachers. Because knowingly, they spread the falsehood. And God is going to hold them more accountable. He deals pretty hard with these false teachers in sharp contrast to the believers who are loved of God, called of God, preserved of God. And again, that's important. Because I would believe an important purpose as well of this letter we find in verses 20 and 21, which essentially, essentially answers the question, then what, what do I do? How do I prepare myself against these attacks of false teachers? Because Jude has highlighted the dangers within their churches, that as faithful believers, they're to contend for the faith, even though they're preserved, they're kept, they're loved. However, there's going to be struggles and they will stumble if they don't follow what Jude is saying. Why? Because the very grace of Christ is at stake. The very love of Christ, the very promises of Christ, the very truth. It's all grace, is it not? So all of that, all of Christ in essence is essentially at stake. A corrupted grace in contrast to the true grace of Christ. So how are believers to fight off against this? How do we react against this, uh, against these attacks? Well, we keep ourselves in the love of God. And our response essentially is we build on our faith. Well, how does Scripture tell us that we build our faith? We pray, we study, and we read Scripture. That's to know and contend the truth. In other words, doctrine is vital. And sadly, I often hear that doctrine is minimized. Now, I don't understand it. But I don't, again, as I read and I hear, I'm just shocked that some Christian churches, some elements of Christianity are hostile to teaching doctrine. Folks, we will not know the truth of Christ okay, if doctrine is not taught. And some of these other 
elements of Christianity are substituting different things and putting preaching and the doctrine secondary or even third or fourth down the line. We all have to recognize the real danger of deceitful teachers coming into our midst. That's what Jude is saying, into our very midst. That's where they make the most damage. And we recognize them by knowing the truth of Jesus Christ. We don't know the truth, we will never recognize them. Because they try to convince us that they're the most progressive. They try to convince us that they're the most enlightened. They try to convince us that they're most, the most spiritual. They tell us that really what's important is your feelings. They tell us that they've had a dream or they've had a vision. And this is what God is saying. I, I, I saw a little video of somebody. If I gave you the name, you'd know. This person said that they had a vision and they saw God's face. I just about sat back and just shuddered. God would not show his face to his servant Moses. And this person is saying they had a vision and saw God. That is blasphemy, folks. And these people were just eating it up. And I don't say this in judgment. I say this in people who, if they're believers in Jesus Christ, are being deceived stumbling, rendering ineffective. And maybe down the road, Ichabod written on that church. This is absolutely false. The apostles and Jude here have to write to the churches to counter these falsehoods. This is not new. And it's going to, it's going to continue. Do you recall what the apostle Paul twice said to the Galatians? Twice. He, he says, if we or an angel preach a different gospel, let them be accursed. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but I think what Paul is saying, listen, if something happens to me, I get over the head or hit over the head, or whatever happens, if I come to you and I preach something different than when I preached up to this point, let me be accursed. This is what he's saying. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. I can't help but think, because Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament was so precise, I just wonder, is the Apostle Paul thinking of the incident in 1 Kings 13? Uh, Angels were highly regarded in the Jewish culture. They were messengers of God, and they're still messengers of God, of course, Uh, but they were really highly regarded in the Old Testament. In the Jewish culture. And sometimes I'm thinking, is Paul referring back to the incident in 1 Kings 13? You may know the incident. God sends, from Judah, sends one of his prophets. He says, I want you to go to Israel. I want you to travel up to Israel. I want you to give them this particular message. And on the way back, come back to Judah. I want you to take a different road. That was it. Something fairly simple, would we not think? So the first prophet does what he's told, and he begins heading back to Judah on a different road. Another prophet of God, so the scripture says, finds out, and you can read this in 13, and he runs to catch up with his first prophet and says to him, so here's one prophet of God talking to another prophet of God, and he says to him, an angel 
told me that you're to return back the original way. And so this first prophet, an angel said that, goes back the original way. God had not changed his orders. And God held that first prophet responsible for disobeying him. And on his way, a lion killed this first prophet. Obeying, disobeying God is serious stuff. Real serious stuff. So even if an angel, even if we have the best speaker here, even if we have uh, a great speaker come in, and that person just, just overwhelms us. If they present a different gospel, let him be accursed. But we have to know the authentic to recognize the falsehood. Because we too have the responsibility to ensure we know doctrine and keep that truth handed down to us. It's, it's the grace of Christ at stake. It's the only means by which we are saved. Even if an angel should preach a different gospel, God's means of salvation does not change with time, and it does not change with generations. It does not change with cultures. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came and he died on a cross for your sins and my sins, and believing that gives us salvation eternally. And nothing is going to change that even if an angel came and preached something different. It is Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. There is no other way. So as Jude tells us, let us pray, let us read, let us study, let us keep ourselves in the love of God, building our faith so we are not led away, so we don't stumble in our Christian walk, so that we continually focus on the grace of our Lord and Sovereign, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, may each of us this morning pray. I would pray that what is said today was truth from you and that we look to the grace of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and only his work. So, Father, give us that grace to believe and contend for that grace. Thank you in Christ's name.